<clears throat> we all know the, we've heard the story and told the story perhaps ourselves <clears throat> so often that it's, it's, um, what's the word? It's become, it becomes sort of a trope. The whole, uh, you know, mom, dad, I met someone line. The line kind of sums it up. We know exactly. It's an archetype, right? It's an archetypal story. You meet someone and they change your life. Your life's never the same after that. And it happened to me. I mean, I'm married and <coughs> it's because I had just dropped out of law school and I was working for a friend at a church before I went to seminary, uh, surrendered to the call, walking out of constitutional law one day in law school, uh, somewhere between the con law building and the parking lot, surrendered to the call to preach the gospel and pastor. And so I got this job uh, for the summertime uh, between law school and seminary with my buddy at a church. And uh, we had we were having a sort of fundraiser garage sale, church-wide garage sale for this for a mission trip or something. And I saw this, I met this dude with a handlebar mustache driving around on a 80cc Honda Cub, driving around the parking lot his hair blowing in the wind. Who's that crazy old man? I like him. And uh, I met him later that day. He proceeded to go, I didn't find this out till later. He proceeded to go home and tell, well, his wife came home. Uh, they met that night at around the dinner table or whatever in the kitchen. And <clears throat> she said, oh, I have this guy that that Robin needs to meet, and I'd like to I'd like to set him up. He's a really neat, godly man, and he's handsome, and blah blah. And Don just, uh, my father in law, just cut her off and said, um, "No, I just met the guy today that she's going to marry." And he was right, as of, as he is about many things. Uh, you know, I I I later I so I met him before I met her, but when I did meet her, I. Uh, I was pretty starstruck. I was pretty awestruck, I should say, and uh, I was hooked from that day on. And, uh, you know, I met, the point is, I met someone uh, who who changed my life. Um, a lot of us can relate. Um, Paul certainly could. That's This is the first time in Acts that he tells his own story. There's one more time. Um, in chapter 26 of Acts, close to the end of the book, that he tells his story. That time in chains. Uh, it's told for him by Luke, the author of Acts, in chapter 9. So his Paul's conversion story is told three times in this book. It has a huge place in the book. And to him, it was the encounter. It was the thing that changed his life. And I just want to say... Uh, you know, my intro wasn't an intro just to be cute to say, "Hey, so we meet we meet people who change our lives." Jesus can be one of those people. This is always. I mean, Paul's story was dramatic because he met Christ on the Damascus Road, or rather, I should say, Christ met him and blinded him and knocked him off his ass and uh, changed his life. Spoke to him, commanded him, said, "Why are you persecuting me?" Who are you, Lord? I am I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Uh, go to Damascus, um, and the rest is history. And but but at the center of this center of this story of Paul's conversion it is not a doctrine. Now, so much doctrine and, and godly truth come out of Paul, 
Of course, we have the rest of the New Testament, most, most, much of which he wrote. But the central thing, the thing that changed his life is the thing that, that we must have for true life change. It's just one thing. There's only one thing that can change your life, and it's the one thing that changed Paul's life, and that is an encounter with Christ, with the risen Christ. And he mentions that here. Uh, when you believe on Christ, <clears throat> he comes to, as your Lord and Savior, he comes to live inside of you. You are having an encounter with the living God. You may not know it at the time. You may think, oh, I, I'm, I'm you are believing on the living, risen God of the universe who became a man and remains a man, but also remains God. He's the God man. To save, to live life in our place, to die death in our place that we deserve and to rise uh, as a new Adam, as a new human representative for all who look to him to be saved. Um, look to him to live. So Paul's amazing, a sort of astounding encounter, extremely colorful, violent gets knocked off, gets blinded, is it, it's the, the paradigm. It's helpful that it's so memorable because it is the way that all of us are saved. Now, we may not have as violent of an encounter. Some people do. But just as much changes when you meet the risen Christ and believe on him as Lord and Savior as Paul did. You are made a new person. You were blind and scales fall from your, the eyes of your soul and you are able to see for the first time that Jesus Christ is the creator and the savior and the judge. <clears throat> so that's really, that's really the pith of, of, Paul's, of Paul's story. Um, I think the verses in sort of in the middle of this, uh, so Acts 22, 14 through 16, in the middle of this uh, this larger passage, this larger story that Paul tells his, of his conversion um, are the key verse cluster. And, and so Ananias says to Paul, as he's sitting in Damascus, waiting for someone to come speak a word to him and, and explain to him what has happened and then raise him up and encourage him and commission him. Um, Ananias is told by God to go do that, and he obeys and the rest of us are believers now because, because Ananias obeyed. Um, thank God he did. <coughs> Ananias said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. So God was the one in control here, right? To see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? I love, I absolutely love the urgency and the efficiency in the commission of God. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There's so much there. I'm not going to unpack it all. That's not the point of these. The, you know, that's kind of what we do in house church. But <clears throat> I think it's the encounter. It, it describes the encounter that Paul had with the risen Christ, and it, and it will leave you unchanged. You'll either run, it will leave you changed, I should say. you either run from him and reject him or surrender. But you can't remain the same after meeting the risen and living God in the person of his son. Um, Paul, God is the one who chose Paul. God is the one who chooses you. Even if it, you walk the aisle and it seems like all the outward circumstances seem like you're the one that chose him and you gradually awoken through the evidence, awoke through the evidence to the fact that he is 
he is who he says he is, Lord and Savior. Um, all that might have been the case, but the fact remains that you did all those things because he chose you in his love and compassion and grace through no desert of your own, but through the desert of Jesus Christ and through his, um, through his work for you on your behalf. Um, so he appointed Paul, he appoints, he appoints us, he appoints every single one of his children. So he appointed you to know his will, to see the right. So Paul was only able to see the righteous one and to hear his voice because he was appointed to do so, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. I just want to sit on that for a little bit. Um, the righteous one, those three words, I think on those three words hang our salvation. talking about Jesus, of course, the fact that he was without blame, without sin, fully right before the father means that his life counts for us and his death counts for us. What it means, he didn't come as an example. We are to imitate him, but only with his spirit in us and being reconciled to him through faith and and in his work and in his person. He came as a substitute. He came as our representative to represent us before God. Instead of God seeing you, he sees Jesus when you trust in Jesus. That is, that is the gospel, the beating heart of the gospel. And the righteous one conveys that. It wouldn't have worked if he weren't right. If he'd had sin, he would have had to die for himself, but he didn't have sin. So who did he die for? You. You. And his sacrifice was worthwhile because he didn't deserve to die. So he took your place and his life counts for you just as much as his death. He obeyed the God in every point of the law fully and gladly. That's the key, right? From the heart. Cause the law is so much about the heart. Jesus sort of shows that when he unpacks the heart of the law in the sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven, he shows how adultery, it comes from the heart. When you lust after a woman, you're an adulterer before God's eyes. He cares about your heart. When you murder, it starts in the heart out of anger. You wish your fellow man were dead. Have you ever been angry at someone like that? Have you ever lusted after a woman? You're a murderer and an adulterer in God's eyes. Now, to actually commit adultery and actually commit murder is even worse, but it's that germ that's in all of our hearts. And the law penetrates to that stuff. And God's the ultimate command that sort of all the others hang on in the Old Testament is to love the Lord your God with all your heart mind and strength and to love your neighbor just like that as you as you love yourself with everything you can from the heart god cares about our hearts and our hearts are corrupted but jesus came and he obeyed from the heart in our place he didn't have to obey he was already in good standing before god he wasn't a human he became a human he became a full-grown man to represent us in his life so his righteousness becomes yours and in his death your sin is put on his shoulders and he breaks, he pays for it, and he dies, and he breaks the power of sin and death, which is a consequence of sin, and he breaks the hold of Satan over our lives, and he transfers us from the dominion of Satan to the dominion, his dominion, the dominion of Jesus Christ, Son of the Father, and he gives us his spirit, and he makes us alive. And now we're represented in Christ as we trust in him, not by the first Adam. We're born in the first Adam, dead on arrival, Ephesians 2, opposed to God, hating God, wanting to do our own thing, wanting to go our own way, wanting to be on the throne of our lives, selfish, self-absorbed. Who's the first person you look at when you see a photograph of you and a bunch of other people? You. I look at me. 
I'm not care. I don't care about anybody else because I am born that way, self-absorbed. You don't have to teach kids to say uh, mine or no. You have to teach them to say please, thank you, yes, yours. It's because we are born curved inward on ourselves because of sin. It's not our natural condition. It's our perverse, perverted condition because Adam is our father and we're born in Adam. But when we look to Christ, the second Adam, we're born anew a second time and he becomes our representative. So this is all wrapped up in this and it's wrapped up in what Paul, you know, Ananias says to Paul, rise and be baptized. Why is that important? Is it just a perfunctory ritual? No, it means that it's an outward expression of what has happened to Paul. It's not that Paul learned a lesson on the road and to, to resolve to be a better person. That's not what happened. He saw, he had an encounter with Christ and he was changed from the inside out through that encounter. He believed Jesus is the Lord. He's the Messiah. I've been thinking was a phony, a charlatan. I believe the truth now. And that when that happens, we are made new on the inside and we will live forever. Though we die, we will get new bodies and we receive his spirit in us at that moment. And the baptism is just a sign of that debt. You go under the water, you die to your old man and you rise new, a new man represented by the second Adam, the better man who obeyed at the tree, whereas the first Adam disobeyed at the tree. In Acts, the, the cross is never called the cross. It's always called the tree. Um, and that's a, that's a callback to Genesis 3, Genesis 2 and 3, right? So through one man's righteousness and obedience, we who trust in him will see, we will be remade and we will see creation remade. Christ didn't just come to save us and bring us to him and to heaven. He came to remake all creation, all that Adam and his rebellion destroyed, Christ will restore. That's our hope. Beautiful. So that is that. What else do I want to say to you guys uh, in this little message before, um, you know, he, Paul, um, he homes in on, in, whenever he talks about his testimony, he homes in on the fact that he, who he was, right? What he was doing. And he homes in on the fact that he was accomplice to murder, if not a murderer himself, approving greatly of um, innocent people being thrown in prison and and stoned and killed. Um, It's said here in verse 19, and Paul's relating this to the crowd. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue, after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. So he was full of hate. <laughs> he was full of malice and murder, even though he was a total perfect law. He kept the law punctiliously on the outside. But religion makes you a hard and a proud and a hateful person. But Jesus sets you free. He sets you free by giving you what you don't deserve and by taking what you do. And so um, Paul knows that he doesn't deserve this. That's the whole point. And so he goes and preaches 
the good news of Jesus to an undeserving world, and he goes to the Gentiles. And that's exactly the next verse, what God says. He says, um, and he said to me, go, for I will send you farther away to the Gentiles. So he becomes the missionary to the Gentiles, this super Jew who knows the law perfectly, probably had the whole Old Testament memorized and keeps the law as as well as any man can, not from the heart, because that's impossible, aside from the renewing work of Jesus, but on the outside, much like Islam, right? He keeps it. And Paul, the conversion of Paul really is like um, an Islamic terrorist being converted. I mean, it's a perfect picture of that. I mean, he, he was a terrorist, who kept the law strenuously and looked down at people who don't. And that's exactly what we see with <clears throat> ISIL, ISIS, whatever you call them, and fundamentalist Muslim. <clears throat> Muslims who read the Quran a certain way, I think who read it truly in a lot of ways. But <clears throat> uh, anyone can be saved. God can literally save whomever he wants, but he uses oftentimes us to preach the gospel to them, and he indeed used Paul. So let, let the conversion of Paul in the depth of his sin, he, you know, he didn't clean himself up, uh, and then God saved him. He was in the midst of his raging, and God reached down into his evil and rebellion and sin, and he saved him. That's how God saves through Jesus. It's the opposite of salvation by works, and it's what Paul preached about joyously for the rest of his life. So this super Jew is sent to the Gentiles. God has his purposes for Paul. It says, you know, back on that, um, that, that key bunch of verses, that verse cluster 14 through 16 of Acts 22 that I mentioned, um, God says, I'm going to save you because I love you so much. Well, he does love him so much, but he says, no, he has purposes for Paul, right? At one point he says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. He says, for you, I'm, I'm coming to get you. I'm coming to save you. I'm going to change you forever by meeting with you and having you having an encounter with me, hearing from me and seeing me. Why? For you will be a witness. This is what Ananias says, for him, for Jesus, to everyone of whom, uh, of what you have seen and heard. And so um, Paul is not a, uh, he's not an advocate. He's not just giving reasons, good sounding reasons to believe this is the reason that the Christian faith hangs together. Those, are, those things can be very valuable. What Paul gives, he's a witness. He's a witness. He, a witness testifies to what he has seen and heard. Here is my testimony. In a certain sense, incontrovertible. You can't tell me this didn't happen because I'm telling you it did, and it's changed me. And here's what it's done to me. Here's who I was. Here's what happened. Here's who I am. Um, I'm a witness of the person, the risen Christ, the person of Christ, I'm telling you, he met with me, he changed me, here's who, here's who I was, and here's what I'm doing now. So, you know, he was, he, how? Peter, see, Peter Wagner asked the great question, how did, <clears throat> what, what Paul sustained during his many trials and beatings and whippings and stonings and shipwreck and sleeplessness, being bitten by snakes and chained to dank stone walls, not to speak of, of the trauma of being hated and rejected and thought a traitor by your own people. What was it that sustained him? It was this vision. This, it was this encounter with the real Christ. Jesus met him and commissioned him and changed him. And so there's this compulsion and this, this indefatigable, inextinguishable happiness and joy that radiated from Paul. That was the life of Christ himself. Um, and, and I think in just in closing saying like, you know, the Jews, the turning point is the kind of that last verse I read in 
Acts twenty two twenty two that <clears throat> excuse me where he he's doing fine. He's he's talking about it, all this stuff and his conversion and what happened to him and how Ananias baptized him and commit and commissioned him. <clears throat> and then he mentions what God says. Well, Lord, I I did this, I did that, and God doesn't say, "Oh yeah, you're right. I guess I picked the wrong guy." He says, "No, go away. I'm sending you to the Gentiles." As soon as Paul mentions the Gentiles, the Jews go ape crazy. They go nuts. <clears throat> why? Because they thought they were better. That's why. There's no other way to put it. I don't want to sugarcoat it, and I'm not sugarcoating it to point the finger. I'm 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 saying it. I'm not sugarcoating it to point the right. That's why I said that right. I'm saying it for two reasons. One, because that's what's in the text. So we need to know. And two, because it very much speaks to us. <coughs> we're not exempt from this sort of reaction. We all think deep down that we're superior to other groups of people or to other people. And that is exactly contrary to the gospel. The gospel says we are all in the same place. We are all un, we are we all stand guilty before a righteous before the righteous one, and we what we deserve is his judgment, his just judgment, and hell, and eternal misery. It's what we deserve. Until you get that, you will never, ever, be happy in Christ. You will never be, you will never gladly receive what he has to offer because it won't be good news to you. It'll just be what you think you deserve. And then when you get mistreated, as even if you do believe on him, and you get, you go through sufferings or whatever, you'll just think, man, this isn't what I deserve. Oh, yes, it is. It's, yes, you're right. It's not what you deserve. You deserve hell. You deserve what he took on the cross. He gladly took our place. And <clears throat> we all are in the same boat. You know, that's what Paul in his magnum opus, Romans, the book of Romans, which he's written just a little bit before this incident here in Acts 22. It's, what he, it's how he opens up the gospel. He says, look, all the Gentiles and all the Jews, we all stand guilty before God. We've all sinned. Quoting, He's quoting from the Old Testament now. We've all gone astray. There's not one single person who's righteous. Not one. The emphasis is in the Hebrew. Not one. So the righteous one seeing no light in the world and no hope came into the world to take the brokenness of the world upon himself and give us his righteousness. All that transacted through faith, through looking on him who was lifted up on a cross for us like a snake on a pole so that our poison would be drawn from us into him and that we would be made right and righteous with his righteousness before the living God. This is the gospel. And when you believe this, to the degree that you believe this, to that degree you will not be able to think any other class or race or creed inferior. I'm not saying other, other creeds aren't inferior. Yes, they are. They are. Every creed is inferior to the creed of Christ, to Christianity, to the Judeo-Christian faith, to the faith revealed once and for all uh, by God's word uh, through the scriptures and uh, leading us to Jesus. But I'm saying people, people who believe other creeds, they aren't inferior to you. They're sinners just like you. And they can also, as Paul was and as you have been, be saved. So the gospel puts us on equal footing. And when we become Christians, we don't do so by our merits. We do so by his merit through what we don't deserve.
by faith. So it's possible for anyone and it's available to anyone. And that will set us free, not just in our lives, but in our witness. And we see that, we see that with the Apostle Paul.